0: Hi,
1: I'm Benjamin Studebaker.
0: Hi, I'm Alex Kanavos, and this is Political Theory 101.
1: So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing something a little bit different. We are bringing back for this week Edmund Wilson, who, of course, in season one is the co-host. Edmund is back this week because he has written a big MPhil essay on James Harrington, a 17th century English political theorist. And Edmund has done an enormous amount of research on James Harrington. He is really, really well-read on James Harrington. So I am just going to kind of let Edmund introduce James Harrington to you. Alex will get a chance to say what he thinks about Harrington, and we'll go from there. So Edmund, explain to the audience, what's the deal with James Harrington?
2: The name James Harrington evokes less strong feelings than names like Thomas Hobbes or Niccolo Machiavelli or Karl Marx. Or Plato or Aristotle. But it's striking to me that Harrington is cited almost as much by almost as many theorists in intellectual history as some of these other more well known people. And I wondered why that was, and that question, why Harrington, kind of led me to this current project. Quite suddenly, after a number of seminars in the MPhil, I'm taking intellectual history last term, uh, in the autumn of last year, where Harrington was never the stated theme of discussion, but all of the papers that we read every so often mentioned Harrington, even though uh, they had a major interest, they would also, also go on to mention Harrington. And so I decided to read Harrington's *The Commonwealth of Oceana*, which is the main work for which he is remembered. Which was published in 1656, five years after the publication of Thomas Hobbes's *Leviathan*. And interestingly, the uh, uh, word "commonwealth" is something that runs through both Hobbes and Harrington, even though Harrington is often more closely identified with Machiavelli and the Republican tradition. And this is rooted in how Harrington himself, throughout Oceana, repudiates the Viathan and argues, for numerous reasons, that Hobbes was mistaken in his attempt to centralise power in one sovereign preferably for Hobbes a monarchy. Whereas Harrington, being associated more with the Republican tradition, is more interested in spreading power more. But neither is Harrington straightforwardly a a Democrat, because uh, Harrington thought that one thing about Republicanism that was distinctive was the idea that because you can't centralise power in one source, that includes both the king, the people, and the nobility. Harrington thinks that the worst thing for any commonwealth, for any state, though state is a term that he doesn't really use much, is imbalance. And the term balance, with two L's in 1650s English, uh, is occurring throughout this book. And it begins with the opening of the Commonwealth Oceana, where he cites uh, Pliny's praise of the mythic state of Oceana, whose ever-fruitful womb is not closed with ice nor dissolved by the raging star. Oceana, for Harrington, lies somewhere between natural extremes, but also between political extremes. Pugus Harrington cites an argument from Verulia, Ver, Verulamius Verulemius that, quote, In countries if gentlemen be too many, the commons will be base. While the middle people of Oceania make good soldiers, the peasants in France do not. Oceana, for Harrington, is a kind of Aristotelian state, Fugus it allocates quite a central role to the middling sort. Pugus both for Aristotle who is a keen theorist of the golden mean between different extremes, and for Harrington, who placed so much emphasis on balance, it's important that you have a kind of middle class between the upper and lower classes in any state, whichever those classes are, in order to balance those extremes, to prevent jealousy and pride from destroying a state as classes go to war against each other. And this, I think, echoes Harrington's worry that with Machiavelli, though he doesn't say this explicitly, you've always got this conflict between the uh, plebeians and the patricians in Rome. And this conflict, which Machiavelli thinks animated and gave Rome its liberty, is a conflict that I think Harrington would be a little more concerned about, though Harrington is very praising of Rome. He insists on the importance in Oceana of a middle class to balance between the traditional Machiavellian classes of the popolo and the grandi, the rich and the poor. And so Harrington wants, as well as uh, having a different balance among the classes and was imagined by other theorists. He, he, he also, Although perhaps the, the closest similarity here, I think, is Aristotle. Harrington also, like Aristotle, wants to find some way of balancing political with economic power because Harrington is aware that, quote, when the owner of the plough comes to have the sword too, he will use it in defence of his own. For Harrington, the distinction that, Today is quite fashionable between political and economic power, is not really all that important a distinction. He agrees with Hobbes that wealth is power. But he disagrees with Hobbes on the point that power is authority. He thinks that if you assume this to be the case, then it becomes all too easy to accept the kind of absolute monarchy that Hobbes has. But for Harrington, It's very important for a commonwealth to balance the different classes. It can't just have all the power to itself, it also needs authority. Perhaps in more modern terms, legitimacy. So how does Harrington do this concretely? Well, there are a couple of mechanisms that he uses. Firstly, because economic power is political power, Harrington thinks it's very important to fix the distribution of property. Whichever commonwealth you have, you need to ensure that the distribution of property is the right one for your commonwealth. Or uh, to be more precise, because for Harrington, the distribution of property usually comes first. You need to build your commonwealth on whatever distribution of property there is. So Harrington argues that a monarchy can really only exist if the king owns about three quarters of the land or more. If the king owns less than a quarter of the land, you can't have a monarchy. And similarly, if the nobility has an excess of land over the people, or if the people or the gentry have an excess of land over the nobility, then that will lead to a state that is either aristocratic, if the nobility rule, or a commonwealth, if the people have most of the property. And Harrington thinks that. England, which in some way Oceania is a utopian representation of, since the 15th century and since the Tudor uh, destruction or erosion, at least of the old feudal nobility, the rise of the gentry makes necessary a kind of state that isn't too extreme either way and that is balancing the different elements of the state, the people, the gentry, the weakened nobility, And the monarchy, because even the gentry, even the middle class for Harrington, if it gets too much of the property in the state, will undermine the mixed constitution that Harrington thinks is ideal. And the key role for the middle class for Harrington is to provide this kind of balance. And he also thinks that the kind of constitution of the state should balance these different classes. So you need to fix the distribution of property with an agrarian law to fix the amount of land allocated to each class. And secondly, once you've done that, you have to ensure that your constitution prevents any political imbalance from wrecking the economic balance that you've established with the agrarian law. And so he imagines a separation of powers where there is a, a Senate of the nobility who uh, essentially act as a deliberating body, and then you have a parliament of the people which makes decisions on the basis of that deliberation. And here I think we have some of the germs of the modern idea of representative democracy encapsulated in Nadia Urbanati's idea that representative democracy separates uh, the will from the opinion, which is quite similar to Hobbes' own separation of uh, deliberation from the decision, the will as the final act of deliberation and the idea in Harrington is that you have the deliberation occurring institutionally among an aristocratic senate and then a popular parliament making decisions on what is proposed in the senate the senate proposes the people resolve but that only answers how Harrington satisfies the the democratic and aristocratic aspects of his mixed constitution, his modern update of the ancient Politeia, a kind of middle way for Harrington between Athens and Rome, which he wants to emulate, Rome especially. But Harrington also wants to emulate Sparta. And he believes that in order to found this state, in order to provide authority to this otherwise somewhat divided balanced but not altogether unified state you still need a kind of hobbesian though he doesn't admit this figurehead and he does propose a figurehead a kind of modern lycurgus the, the founder of ancient sparta and he calls this figurehead the lord archon and the lord archon is the one who animates the state, who presides over the discussions in the Senate that lead to the agrarian law, to the written constitution that allocates the different roles for the different elements of the state. And many readers of Harrington, such as Judith Sklar, uh and Charles Blitzer, have noted the role of uh, the Commonwealth of Oceana as a kind of constitution of Oceana for Harrington. A lot of the work is quite uh, dialogical or discursive, but it also involves a set of concrete proposals that emerge from this discussion. And so, Harrington thinks that this, this, this uh, sophisticated balance, political and economic, that he envisages for England or for Oceania, is something that can be secured by a, a, a unifying. Figurehead who provides a kind of charismatic authority, to use Weber's term, to uh, coincide with the kind of legal uh, authority and the traditional authority in harkening back to um, Greece and Rome that uh, that Harrington wants to found this this state. And the Lord Archon, like Lycurgus and Sparta, leaves. Um, well, it, it is quite. Uh, 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 an English Sparta to be honest because uh, while Lycurgus left to the Apollo, uh, the Lord Archon leaves to an English country house for a while (laughs) and this is taken to be the the exit of the Lord Archon from the state and and in the meantime when the Lord Archon is gone in the hope that the Lord Archon will return the laws are upheld however unlike Lycurgus who doesn't return to Sparta and is rumoured to have uh, died and in dying, ensuring that the people of Sparta keep, keep their promise to uphold the laws while well, uh, Lyceus is gone in the hope that generations to come Lyceus will return. The Lord Archon doesn't do this. The Lord Archon returns and is greeted with celebrations and Oceana ends with this praise of the Lord Archon. Uh, and it's it's quite a it's quite a quite a lengthy quite a lengthy praise. The Lord Archon and Sole Legislator of Oceana, uh, um, part of Patriae, invincible in the field, inviolable in in his faith, unfeigned uh, in his zeal, immortal in his fame. The greatest of captains, the best of princes, the happiest of legislators, the most sincere of Christians. Who setting uh, the kingdoms of earth at liberty took the kingdom of heavens by violence. And so concludes the Commonwealth of Oceana. Harrington um, is known for other works uh, in which uh, he presents various footnotes to this, this, this main political presentation. Um, in a system of politics, he uses phrases like foundation and superstructure um, to refer to the balance of property, foundation and the superstructure the balance of power that rests on this balance of property. And this has been taken to have uh, implications for modern schools of thought, like realism, which is focused on a balance of power, and Marxism, which is focused on base and superstructure. Um, And a lot of the debates in the history of political thought are, well, who is Harrington? Is Harrington the progenitor of Marxism or of realism, of a kind of modern republicanism, or even of a modern liberalism in his di- idea of a separation of powers and representative democracy. And though it's usually not the case in answer to such questions, I think the answer to this question is Harrington is somehow all of these things. I think the more interesting question is how is he all of these things? And, uh, because I think it's, uh, it's become uh, a, a, a new tradition of this great podcast to uh, have essay-style questions uh, before, before the podcast. Um, for this episode, I contributed some uh, questions, and I was wondering, Alex, if uh, you, you mentioned that you had looked at one question about the role of religion in Oceana, which I haven't discussed much so far. Hmm. And I was wondering what you made of that. Uh, I am currently trying to remember the exact question I asked, uh, as I don't have it in front of me. I think it was basically,
0: Uh, is politics in Oceana religious? Yeah. Uh, What do you think? Do you think it is? Definitely. Um, And maybe even a political construction, all of religion. But what you were saying about balance in republics, uh, applies to a religion a lot and also about how Aristotelian a lot of the politics is. Because mm-hmm. in Oceania, religion is not just the faith, the Christian faith, it's not just a spiritual faith, it's also the civic national religion. And in a way, both are kind of Aristotelian in their epistemology or their claims to know some kind of truth. They both have a root in freedom of thought. And without that freedom of thought, you can't have conviction in either. And if you do have conviction in either, then you have allegiance to them. You have faith in the laws, you have faith in God. So yeah, definitely we could talk about religion and the role that plays in balancing out factions in the Commonwealth and also how it can become its own faction in the Commonwealth and corrupt it. Yeah. Mm. Um, but before we get onto that, just a qu- quick question about, you know, we were talking about the foundation superstructure of this republic. And in the, Uh I think it was the superstructure, you have the Senate, the people, the executive, the Senate debate and propose, the people resolve, and the executive Mm -hmm. also resolves, right? Or the executive executes. Because to me, resolve or settle sounds like executing. So is the people, which is part of the legislature, is that, do they always have an executive role? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question.
2: I think um uh, though verbarian authority might be something that Harrington discusses, I don't think verbarian bureaucracy, as far as I can remember, has much of a uh is really anticipated but anticipated by harrington um i am probably wrong about this uh because uh, I'm beginning to think everything is anticipated by harrington um but yeah i'm I'm not sure about that role of executive power, which is a, a excellent point i think it in some ways the lord archon for uh harrington is a bit like uh, the emperor augustus in balancing the people and the senate uh because the senate uh proposes and the people resolve i mean these are the functions of the state to uh, try to figure out what the right thing is to do and then to do it
0: mm.
2: and um uh, if the people resolve, it seems that for Harrington, well, actually, in fact, I, 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 I did speak too soon um, because Harrington thinks that local officials, uh, in, in the sense, administrators, uh, are uh, similarly to be uh, rotated. He, he is a, he is a seen as a progenitor of representative democracy. Um, but by and large, it's election by rotation that Harrington favors, uh, both for um, the normal democratic offices of, of uh, the, the, the politicians, and also for the kind of the implementers of these decisions. Uh, which, uh, in the run up to the time Harrington was writing, that this was not really the case by the 1650s, known as justices of the peace. Uh, and yeah, so I think that there there is a role of executive bureaucracy in harrington's oceana uh uh, and it is closely related to uh the mixed constitution and is a part of that mixed constitution of democracy aristocracy and monarchy um i I I, guess this is
1: a bit of a constitutional question right so i think Mm -hmm. you clarified very much how the senate differs from the commons in this schema the role of the lord archon is a little bit less clear because, you know, Lycurgus is, of course, someone who goes away. He gives the law and then he gets out of the system and no longer plays a role in the actual running of the state. Augustus, on the other hand, has his fingers in everything and is completely involved and completely necessary for the principate to function. And of course, because this is England in the 17th century, the Lord Archon is almost certainly a gesture in some way at Cromwell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Is it a gesture at Cromwell because politically there has to be a gesture to Cromwell? <laughs> or is it a gesture to Cromwell because there is actually a role for Cromwell in this schema? Yeah, that, that, that is really the question because
2: um, uh, in an earlier manuscript of Oceana, which I... I haven't managed to find Harrington uh, is uh, ha- ha- the manuscript is uh, censored by Cromwell, and after the censorship, Harrington puts a uh, a, a new cover to Oceana, which is, is involves a dedication to the Lord Protector, uh, the Lord Protector being Cromwell. Um, as it happens, um, um Harrington is also uh um targeted after the uh, Stuart restoration is a- is actually locked up in the Tower of London uh and uh, his uh uh his uh, family have to pay to get him out um and his family is uh, wealthy enough to do so and being part of this kind of upcoming gentry so uh whether the Lord Archon is uh, solely inserted in order to perform a role of Cromwell, or whether it's simply moulded to adapt to the risk of censorship uh, is somewhat unclear, but I, I, yes, I do think there is certainly a degree to which the Lord Archon is uh, um, at least with the dedication it's possible that the main edition and Harrington in a 1658 edition um, uh, which I'm consulting in the archives is uh, has a list of corrections but so far as i know none of those corrections relates to the lord Archon and therefore to cromwell the main uh, the main insertion seems to be this dedication at the opening to oceana uh, its dedication to the lord protector um so it it it, it seems that harrington is um yeah li- like cobb's in treacherous political waters um and I guess there is also the question of uh, um, the extent to which uh, uh, Leviathan uh, is something that began with um, Hobbes's monarchist um, leanings, um, but has since been seen as another way of portraying the Cromwellian uh, dictatorship. So, or, 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 or Commonwealth to. Uh, to speak more Uh, favourably. Depends on who you speak to, really. I think that, yeah, Harrington is definitely more ambiguous than Hobbes in which way he is leaning. He he is certainly more parliamentarian um, than Hobbes, and that is his political inclination. Um, But... Politically, yeah, my, it's quite unclear. My
1: impulse yeah. would be to say that it's probably the case that in his heart of hearts, Harrington wants a much smaller role for the Lord Archon than is suggested by the ending. But mm. that it's not politically possible to say that outright. And so we get yeah. a version of the Lord Archon, which is a kind of symbolic charismatic role, in some ways similar to the role which the Queen now presently has. In the British mm, political system, yeah and then at other points, this suggestion of returning and and uh, having this kind of divine character, uh, which sounds almost like a completely different role, and perhaps yeah. both are gestured to so that the arg- you know the, both arguments are there for those looking for each right, so Another which is the real I, harrington <laughs> yeah, yeah well. Yeah, the answer is that it's been deliberately left vague because yeah. for either to be declared as the real Harrington would cause trouble. Uh, yeah, that's I think that's point. probably the answer. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to raise constitutionally before we proceed, perhaps to the religious questions. Yeah. I want to note that here the upper house, the Senate, proposes, and the Commons then decides. Yeah. And this inverts the actual relationship between these houses that comes into vogue in both britain and the united states in the united states all money bills begin in the house of representatives and then must be approved by the senate in the uk all legislation begins in the commons and then the house of lords has the option to veto it Mm -hmm. so that relationship in in point of fact gets reversed as these institutions develop just something i wanted to draw attention to it's a rather interesting quirk of harrington's argument that he wants bills to begin in the upper house
2: uh-huh yes cuz the wisdom um lies with the uh lies with the uh nobility for harrington so the nobility voices these opinions although the wisdom really resides Harrington with the lord on whether that's an inser- a later insertion or not but
1: the, the nobility has this a uh, kind of role of opinion formation yeah, and then and that's that antique emphasis on virtue and of course since property is I think still for Harrington a means of acquiring leisure and virtue rather yeah. than just a means of acquiring money or a means of competing in the market there's still enough of that antique influence for Harrington to think that because the nobility is has more property it has more leisure and therefore more virtue and wisdom and therefore an impulse to begin the legislative process in the upper house a yeah. very antique aspect. Yeah. of this argument yeah
0: how can we be sure that if the people either suggest or decide which one is actually correct or neither they both just kind of you know quirks of the local circumstance because when he points out for example that venice was more virtuous than others because i think the senate also resolved it didn't just propose and debate those kinds of things like it just seems like what's the basis for those kinds of claims
1: Edmund, do you have a, a thought on that? Or should I speculate? I mean, it seems like Harrington is spec-
0: speculating, spec- but yeah.
1: What's your speculation? Well, I think that uh, a strong emphasis here is put on the distribution of property, because for Harrington, the distribution of property heavily circumscribes what kinds of states are possible. And so the, having the, the commons make these decisions is in large part about preserving a particular distribution of property. Ultimately, if it's the nobility which decides, the nobility, I think, has a lot more ability to skew the distribution of things in its favor. Uh, Whereas with the commons deciding, anything which would disempower the commons or weaken the commons or change the distribution in ways unfavorable to the commons can be blocked by the commons, straightforwardly. Mm. Uh, So I think that is why the commons is ultimately invested with decision-making power here. Although I suppose if you reverse the relationship and give the decision-making power to the nobles, the commons might not propose any legislation which would weaken its own position. And so it's not entirely clear to me why it would have to go one direction or the other direction, apart from perhaps a conviction on the part of Harrington that the nobility is more virtuous than the commons owing to it's having more property than the commons and therefore more leisure time and therefore more virtue in the sense in which this argument is heavily aristotelian still and therefore heavily antique the nobility will be presumed to be more virtuous than the commons yeah at least in the sense that
2: individual nobles will have more property than individual members of the gentry even though the gentry as a whole is getting more and more property showing that the individual nobles will have more time for leisure and contemplation, even though the gentry as a whole is getting uh, more and more property. Uh, There is, I think, a slight ambiguity, uh, perhaps before we transition to matters of religion in this political economy, which is the role of uh, trade for Harrington. He insists on fixing the distribution of property, and some interpretations of Harrington have it that Well, the reason he's fixing the distribution of property is partly because he's aware that property is becoming more mobile, especially with this rising gentry, which is less dependent on agriculture and more dependent on trade. But uh, Harrington's law is not a commercial law, it's an agrarian law, uh, fixing the distribution of land. And Harrington is quite favourable, of Venice, uh, a trading uh, city-state. Uh, and it's quite unclear uh what's really going on here uh pugs harrington is aware of the different kinds of property but he prefers not to speak about some of the problems that might come from um excesses of uh excesses of trade though he is very critical of uh as he argues different kinds of uh, inequality and imbalance uh, undermining a state, he prefers not to trace that to the, uh, the alleged uh, cause or the, the, the since-alleged cause in 18th century political economy in uh, the, evolving, the evolving market economy of the time. And Even people like C.B. Macpherson, who like to read Hobbes and Harrington in the context of an emerging market society finds in Harrington more of an emphasis on class than an emphasis on trade, um, per se. And I thought that might be um, worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, it might be the case that instead of a comparison of Athens and Rome, the comparison might be Venice and Rome, with Harrington looking for a mean between Venice and Rome. Since Venice has political institutions that are more similar to those Harrington prefers, but Rome is agrarian while Venice is too small, to have su- substantial amounts of land uh, such that a lot of the ordinary members of the, of the gentry could be part of the political system, could be propertied. You don't have that in Venice because yeah. the island of Venice is so tiny and so circumscribed.
0: Does that apply to the Israelite kingdom too? Because you said that they were flawed in that they, their land policy was – no, their election was very uh, – it wasn't often – but their their land policy was quite it was based on the people. So even though they had poor rotation, they had good agrarian law. Is it the same for Venice?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be I think with, with Venice it's stronger rotation, but there can't be much in the way of agrarian law oh. because there isn't much in the way of agrarian land. Okay. There isn't just the island of Venice doesn't have a lot of land and Venice didn't take a lot of territory that has large amounts of arable land. So Venetian wealth was based more on merchants and less on landholders. And so I think on the one hand this is meant to be agrarian and it's meant to be based on a distribution of land at the same time that's supposed to be institutionally inscribed with a rotation of offices and finding those two traits together seems very difficult historically and I think Harrington is perhaps excited about the possibility that those things could come together in England
0: But you know the rota- uh, mm. yeah uh, the rotation of offices and um, also the virtue that each office was supposed to, or each minister was supposed to have. Those two things are not so present when you talk about the religious office, because people, at least in the universities, which is one religious office, in the council of religion, there's going to be a rotation, but in the universities, there's going to be no rotation in Harrington, because that's the way to get virtuous people who are into the faith for its own sake, practicing the faith, and then therefore not turning the faith into something that's, purely a political reasoning out of interest and not concerned with justice and things like that. Um, it could also corrupt in another way and become a kind of university full of specialists that can't really see the bigger picture. So if there was a, a council of war or something, they wouldn't be able to contribute any wisdom because they wouldn't be able to tell you about how to act in the future, but they'd be able to list off lots of lots of specialized knowledge about the past. Um, but even worse than that is a university that fully corrupts And doesn't become about any knowledge for its own sake and yeah basically lifts words of scripture to fit the political moment Um, so virtue matters but the way you cultivate it is not by rotating people in that office it's by actually keeping them locked down and not letting them work anywhere else
2: this reminds me of Plato's principle of specialization which I bring up because uh, we've kind of noted uh, parallels between Harrington and Machiavelli, uh, parallels which are uh, somewhat obvious, uh, uh, I think, due to the republicanism, but also, and I would just like to clarify what I said about trade, Harrington, though, the emphasis is on the fixing the distribution of land, and does occasionally make reference to um, trade. Uh, he claims that his principle of uh, uh, balance applies to all states, but less neatly to uh, trading states. And he uh, makes the criticism of trading states that, um, quote, if you lay your Commonwealth upon any other foundation than the people, you frustrate yourself of proper arms and so lose the empire of the world. Uh, for instance, uh, quote, Columbus offered gold unto, uh, one of strings, for kings, though uh, whose happy incredulity another prince uh, hath drunk the potion, even under the consumption of the people. But I do not offer you a nerve of war that is made of purse strings, such a one as hath drawn the face of the earth into convulsions, and such a one as is natural to her health and beauty. Look to it, where there is tumbling and tossing upon the bed of sickness, it must end in death or recovery. And in order to avoid... Uh, this corruption of gold and the weakening of the state militarily, uh, Harrington suggests in his the epitome of the whole Commonwealth of Oceana, quote: "The centre or fundamental laws are first the agrarian, proportioned at two thousand pounds a year in land, lying and being within the proper territory of Oceana, and so stating property in land as such a balance that the power can never swerve out of the hands of the many. Secondly, the ballot." Conveying this equal sap from the root by an equal electional rotation unto the branches of magistracy or sovereign power, the orbs of this commonwealth, being civil, military or provincial, are, as it were, cast upon this mold or centre by the divisions of the people, first into citizens and servants, secondly into youth and elders, thirdly into such as have £100 a year in lands, goods or monies, who are of the horse and such as have under, who are of the foot, Fourthly, by their usual residence into parishes, hundreds, and tribes. In in other words, Harrington is aware of trade. He is aware of different kinds of economic property, lands, goods, and monies, and is aware of the dangers of imbalance of any kind. And he's aware of how trade and how uh, the uh, corrupting influence of uh, gold goods and monies as well as overbalance and land can have on any state in leading it to lose its kind of military power which i think harkens a bit back to machiavelli's arguments about the danger of mercenaries to a civic uh, military and like machiavelli harrington is concerned about the external military competitiveness of oceana and it has been argued that like machiavelli Harrington has a view to the external expansion of oceana uh, and th- this is of course at the time as England is starting to uh, expand its uh its kind of embryonic empire uh and H- Harrington thinks that these internal reforms will make uh oceana or england more externally um competitive uh, which i think does contrast uh harrington uh with someone like Aristotle or Machiavelli and Harrington are more externally expansionary even, uh, uh, than someone like Aristotle is and I think in a sense uh, one comparison would, comparison would be Plato's Kallipolis both internally because of this division of power among the kind of opinionated wise aristocracy on the one hand and the people who fulfil the functions both of bearing arms and of looking after the land and of uh, and of being involved in trade and other economic functions? So you have this division um, between the kind of guardian aristocracy on the one hand, and the and the people and the uh, nobility who correspond, I think, roughly to. Plato's producers and auxiliaries. Because like the auxiliaries, the nobility inspire the people to fight and are inspirational figures. The nobility for uh, Harrington are a bit like the Guardians and a bit like the auxiliaries in Plato's state. It's not clear exactly which one they are. And indeed, for Plato, the Guardians initially train with the auxiliaries so, and
1: learn the art of warfighting before the art of governing. Edmund, let me ask you. So, I... I- Get this point about the principle of specialization uh, for the priests and the universities. Do the priests in Harrington straightforwardly have a political role?
2: Um, I'm not sure if they do. He emphasizes the Christian character of the Lord Archon, and the state is in some ways a Christian commonwealth, to use uh, Hobbes' phrase. But no, I don't think there is a political role uh for the church he is not yeah he he i think he agrees with the the tudor sub, um, subordination of the nobility and the tudor subordination of the church to the
1: uh to the english state so do the priests have property on this schema i am not sure if
2: the property of priests is discussed much in the whole of Oceana.
1: And if the priests, you know, so Alex makes this point that the priests are in these universities and they're kind of cloistered off in their specialized knowledge. Hmm. If they don't have property, then they can't be property owning participants in this political system. Hmm. So that seems to suggest that spiritual and academic expertise is kind of cordoned off from political decision making and that these people might be there to be consulted or to be, uh, or to offer advice, but they would not be either members of the commons or members of the nobility because they would not possess the property to qualify for either and therefore might be in a purely advisory role.
2: Yeah. Yes. I, I I think that's the case. I think it is advisory. Yes. The church doesn't have political power for,
1: uh, and that would be of course a major difference between plato and harrington because for plato the philosophers who engage in this contemplative dialectic exercise are meant to exercise political power whereas here they are kept out of that because of this need for them to have property for them to individually hold property and that's something that plato expressly forbids to the philosopher kings they are not allowed for for plato uh, to individually hold property. So for Plato, Mm. the goal is to have the rulers not hold property, whereas for Harrington, the decision-makers are meant to hold property. And this is, I think, an aspect of Harrington's theory that is much more uh, Aristotelian at minimum and perhaps modern if we think of a property-owning democracy, property-owning republic. uh, That kind of idea comes into vogue under people like Rawls. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I I I I th- I think so. I think the 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 issue um is Yes, yeah, so, so certainly that the, the it seems that there is this economic difference between um Plato and
1: Harrington. Um and that and- Harrington straightforwardly admits the re- you know and this is why you position him as a bit of a realist or as a bit of a progenitor of marxism. The distribution of property dictates the political system. So if you have a class of people that don't have property, those people for Harrington cannot rule because those who have property will be those who rule. Wealth will translate into property. And therefore, a political Mm. system like Plato's, in which the ruling class doesn't have property, is too idealist. This is
0: also why religion can be so sidelined and even kind of imagined as a construction and not something that exists separate from politics on its own terms. Because what founds politics is military, it's gentlemen, it's members of the upper caste, the nobility. And he says, yeah, I think this has been said, but Harrington says that excellence in the arts is open to all the people uh, in all arts, except for the military art. Because you need nobles to own people
1: and money yeah, to 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 fight these wars. So... You have to have property to be, to have, uh, to be armed. It, the expectation is that the military will be citizens under arms, property-owning citizens under arms, right? So it's not something which is open to everybody. Uh, I also want to raise, this is a, a side point, and I don't know, Edmund, if you've run across this or if mm-hmm. you've thought about it, but George Orwell in 1984, his villainous version of the British state is called Oceania, <sighs> in part as a callback to this, and as a callback to Harrington's mm. idea. Oceania is a state perpetually at war in 1984, yeah. its citizens yeah. constantly under arms, engaged in eternal, uh, an eternal expansionist project. Mm. Uh, yeah. And yeah. critiques of British imperialism will often name Harrington as a progenitor of British imperialism because he suggests that Britain should be expanding in the way that uh, Rome expanded, but with an institutional schema that is more similar to Venice's.
0: When he mentions the founding of the Commonwealth needing Mm -hmm. uh, noble gentlemen and military power, he basically makes that argument. He says the people alone would be slothful and regardless of the world if they didn't have the nobility. And I guess what that means is that they would be happy with self-preservation on a very limited scale. And that even a republic that's based on preservation and not expansion obviously requires some degree of expansion. As you said, Venice had very little land, had to go out. So,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there is a little bit, uh, you know, for Orwell, there's a bit of a critique to be made here that Britain and perhaps just in general Anglo-American uh, states are trending in this direction of just being constantly under arms, empire building. Now, in point of fact, there hasn't been a whole lot of, of conquest of territory since orwell wrote that book Uh, and in many ways i think 1984 gestures at uh, a version of reality people feared but which hasn't come to pass our our world insofar as it's dystopian looks dystopian in different kinds of ways from the ways orwell detailed in 1984 but i i mention this because i i do want to mention that there are some potentially imperialist implications to this view And in some ways, it anticipates not just, say, the British state or the American state, but also the British Empire, something Mm. that Orwell uh, liked to rag on a little bit.
0: But I don't see that empire, sorry, Edmund, as Orwellian, but
1: simply... Well, Orwell Mm. Orwell was discussing a possible developmental direction for Britain. So 1984 is written about where the British Empire might be going, Mm. what it might be becoming
0: oh yeah it could definitely true but in harrington i uh, i was trying to say that it for example the national religion is not some dogma free thought in public requires free thought in private and vice versa so it's not like you can have one without the other so it has to be genuine so that's a pretty strong foundation and a pretty strong private sphere that's given to the individual in harrington at the start says that you can't have political conviction unless it's based on freedom of thought. So how is that supporting kind of Orwellian politics?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, Orwell, of course, is writing much later than Harrington. Harrington, in many ways, is, is anticipating a possible direction. And like a lot of theorists who are anticipating a, a possible direction, the focus is on solving the problems of the present moment and on potentiality, things that might go well, things that might work out. 20th century writers like Orwell tend to focus on the ways in which this particular project may have gone off the rails, especially these mid-century writers who are writing in the wake of the world wars and in the wake of the kinds of states that have, have uh, that, that were developed to compete in those wars, fight those wars. And so it's a completely different vantage point. But I think the the idea that Everybody's got to be under arms all the time, and there's got to be this expansion. Has certain implications that yeah, we should we should draw attention to.
2: I think, interestingly, the internal picture that Harrington paints is quite um, different from the external picture, which assumes the. Um, permanent possibility of violence, something that Hobbes also assumes, but from this Hobbes deduces the importance of defense as the main duty of the state. Whereas for Harrington and Machiavelli, it seems that uh, expansion is the best mechanism for uh, self-preservation. Um, uh, if uh, Hobbes is with the uh, so-called defensive realists in international relations, thought uh, nowadays, like uh Kenneth Waltz, then perhaps uh, Machiavelli and Harrington are more with you. Offensive realists like uh, John Mersheimer. But that's, uh, that's Although a John Mersheimer
1: himself claims that his view is implied by Hobbes. Yes, yeah, so I think, I think Mersheimer is much
2: more Harringtonian. A lot of people say they derive their view from Hobbes, but our view of Hobbes is uh, in many ways uh, uh, altered by Harrington's uh, critique of uh, Uh, Hobbes, uh, a critique which itself uh, acknowledges a lot of what Hobbes says. Uh, And Harrington says that though I, uh, Harrington, disagree with Hobbes, it's it's because of everything that Hobbes has taught me. (laughs) And so uh, Harrington is quite, um, uh, and he says this outside of the main uh, main text, the Commonwealth of Oceana, um, though he does, the only time he mentions Hobbes in in Oceana is favourably, he, he cites the Leviathan a lot and says, well, Leviathan gets this wrong, Leviathan gets this wrong. But then when he met, she mentions Hobbes by name, he mentions Hobbes favorably. And this is towards the end of Oceana, where things get a bit more spiritual, where he agrees with Hobbes' idea that the uh, the art of man being politics is an imitation of the art of
1: God. Uh, perhaps uh, that would mean philosophy. Or something I take like your that. point that Mearsheimer's argument may be more similar to Harrington's than to Hobbes. Though I think it's unlikely that Mearsheimer read Harrington or was influenced in any direct way by Harrington. My guess would be that Mearsheimer read Hobbes and interpreted Hobbes perhaps in a more Harringtonian kind of way.
2: Uh, yes. In yeah. so and, far and, as
1: we're associating yeah. Harrington with expansion here.
2: And just John Mearsheimer owes a lot of his theory to Kenneth Waltz's defensive realism. So I think does Harrington's... Uh, more offensive uh, um, model uh, owe a lot to um, Hobbes's defensive model, and the logics, the logics of uh, uh, Harrington's model or Mersheimer's model, do indeed come from uh, the that, that famous chapter of Leviathan discussing how you get from natural equality and scarcity to uh, diffidence and glory and conflict.
1: And of course, uh, and the point has also been made. That these are kind of two different sides of a whole span of foreign policy theory, European foreign policy theory, which includes a lot of the different imperialist takes from the 18th and 19th centuries. People like Carr, people like Schmidt, uh, many of whom draw on theorists like Harrington and Hobbes. uh, But whether we read all of those people as as imperialist and, and use that to kind of denigrate the argument, I think. I don't think we have to do that. There are interesting mm. aspects to these arguments freestanding their uses and abuses by people looking to justify military expansion. Um, but I do think that when a theorist expressly calls for expansionism, that we should draw attention to the implications I'm not sure. of that.
2: The thing is Harrington doesn't explicitly call for expansion. He's read sometimes as imperialist, but I think. In some ways, this is a slightly anachronistic uh, uh, reading. Uh, Harrington isn't explicitly
1: calling for expansion in the way that Machiavelli is. Well, when we talk about empires, you know, the empires of 19th, of the 19th century are very different from the kinds of empires that earlier theorists are thinking of when they talk about expansion. So someone like Harrington or Hobbes, when we're talking about expansion or Machiavelli, we're thinking about The Roman Empire, antique empires, empires like Persia or China, uh, empires which are often internally highly pluralistic, have lots of different religions, have lots of different cultural groups. The empire building, which we see in the 19th century, tends to be focused more around specific ethnicities or nations uh, ruling over and dominating other groups that are defined as inferior or defined as secondary, or less developed, or what have you. And the theorists that are often used in the 19th century to justify those projects are theorists who wrote in earlier periods, often thinking about different kinds of empire from the kinds of empire that we actually do get in the 19th century. So I don't think we can hold theorists like Harrington, responsible for the kind of empire building which does in fact occur... In the 19th century, much of which is motivated by a lot of nationalist and, frankly, racist ideas that are not yet in the history of political thought to anything like the same degree at the time when people like Harrington are writing. And so oftentimes people will read the history of thought, they'll read some 19th century theorists like Carlyle, and they'll go, oh, my God, you know, these people are drawing on Harrington and therefore, you yeah. can find in Harrington, you know, the roots of, the, of 19th century imperialism. Right. But yeah, when yeah. Harrington is writing the kind of expansionism and the kind of empire building he's talking about is, you know, he's thinking about antique examples of that. He is not able to anticipate the precise nature of empire building in the 19th century.
2: Yes. And, and even then, I think that the primary aim is still defense for Harrington. Uh it's not he, uh, while Machiavelli is explicitly advocating uh for the uh conquest of um Italy, uh, Harrington is well perhaps doing a similar thing uh with um uh the the, the, the Britain to some degree, um uh, though that's uh largely already uh underway. In some ways the, the imperialism is doesn't seem to expand uh, much further it's not ruled out or uh, uh, denigrated either I think one interesting point is that while Hobbes and Locke uh, portray pre-colonial um, places uh, like North America as states or and, and, and people uh, in these places as in a state of nature uh, in need of a benign commonwealth to overawe the war of or the permanent condi- condition or possibility of war against all in a state of nature. Harrington does not really have a concept of a state of nature. And therefore this argument for colonialism, I don't think has, uh, much, um, uh, doesn't really have much um, play in Harrington. And so he, he well, he does explicitly
1: yeah. make reference to you know, the Indies and to expanding into the Indies. uh huh. He does do that. Uh, whether he's referencing the Americas or India, it's not necessarily straightforward. I think probably he's referencing the Americas at that point. Uh, I, I also want to say, the contemporary IR realists in the United States, who uh, are sometimes positioned as part of this tradition of discussing the uses of expansionism, they similarly uh, are not necessarily defined by the fact that there are 19th century racist theorists in the history of IR. Many of them are going back to Hobbes, going back to Harrington, and taking inspiration directly from that, and they may otherwise have uh, very liberal or very pluralistic attitudes. They are not necessarily, I, I don't think John Mearsheimer, because you know he read... You know, Kenneth Waltz, who read Hans Morgenthau, who read Carl Schmitt, that he's in any way inextricably tied to, say, German imperialist thought. Adam Tooze uh-huh. wrote this piece recently for the New Statesman, attempting to tie John Mearsheimer inextricably to imperialist thought by suggesting that the contemporary IR realists in the United States, because they're all influenced by Hans Morgenthau, are all influenced by Carl Schmitt. And are therefore all influenced by German imperialism. And in some way, this just kind of taints them uh, in a piece that where the headline referred to the dark origins of realism. And I think this kind of thinking where you go, well, someone subsequently or someone previously in the chain of intellectual history had very, very bad views. Therefore, anybody who influenced them is tainted by the fact that they influence the person with the bad views. And anyone who subsequently comes after the person with the bad views is also tainted by having been part of the same genealogy. Uh, This is a kind of, I think, intellectual racism. It treats intellectual ideas like they're inheritable. If you read somebody or you talked to somebody who had a bad idea or you read somebody or talked to somebody who read somebody who talked to somebody who read somebody who talked to somebody who had a bad idea, then the bad ideas are somehow transferred. And even if, say, John Mearsheimer would not in any way avow or express support for uh, certain kinds of uh, 19th century century behavior in moral terms... uh, Nonetheless, because you can tie him genealogically, intellectually to certain figures in the 19th century, there are some people who want to say that that whole string of theory is tainted in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I've i been thinking about this recently because, of course, I was at Cambridge when Adam Toos was at Cambridge, and I was at Chicago when John Mearsheimer was at Chicago, and this whole thing about Ukraine crisis has been on my mind and the way that you know john Mearsheimer's uh critique of ukraine is, has tended to be a little bit uh has tended to aggravate a lot of people and as a result there has been an effort i think on the part of some people to in some way taint the realist tradition so that john's argument doesn't have to be paid attention to and this works through this kind of genealogical mechanism so i kind of i, I brought up the orwell thing in part to point out that there is a kind of expansionist element here, but also in part to say it's a little bit unfair for people like Orwell or more contemporary theorists like Twos to taint historical theorists on the basis of who their ideas go on to influence or to taint contemporary theorists on the basis of who influenced them or who influenced the people who influenced them.
2: Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is very Harringtonian because Harrington is someone who is completely buried under the weight of firstly his influences and the many people who he cites and who he's compared to before he wrote and also the people who he's taken to have influenced and the schools of thought he's taken to have influenced which range from uh liberalism to marxism to republicanism uh, to nationalism to all sorts of also all sorts of things um and i think this uh the result of this is that we actually miss the real uh the 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 the, the real harrington who is usually somewhere between these extremes i think a good example of this is Uh, in discussing uh, an ancient uh, model of imperial expansion. Harrington uh, asks rhetorically, to what good of mankind did Alexander the Great infect uh, the air with his heaps of carcasses? He also says, if Alexander had restored the liberty of Greece and propagated it unto mankind, he had done like my Lord Archon and might have truly been called the Great. I think it's remarks like this which lead to... uh, I I see as a... uh, Harrington is kind of seen as a dark legend in (laughs) the intellectual history uh, and I think is... uh, The the fact that Harrington seems neither to be uh, too nice... And easy a theorist to go to, um, but also uh, uh, yeah, a theorist who entertains seemingly contradictory positions, for instance, simultaneously, uh, uh, saying that Alexander the Great shouldn't be called the Great, and that if he had done it better, maybe he should have been. Uh, in some ways, this inhabits a, a kind of middle point between, on the one hand, Aristotle's insistence that you just ha- should have a city state and not. Ex- expand beyond that and Alexander taking his tutoring from Ale- Aristotle and throwing, out the, throwing it out the window uh, Harrington wants to say well yes you could do it but do it well and I think this p- partly might be why he was looking to Rome as the model for Oceania um, uh, rather than uh, Alexander the Great's empire or uh, the uh, uh, the of Athens. It, it it seems that Harrington is, and this is a term that is increasingly becoming pre- prevalent in history, of political thought. So-called republican imperialist, and usually we see these terms as separate uh, in according to Machiavelli's distinction between principalities and republics, and between uh, and more recently between empires and republics. Uh, the first time I actually heard the term was. In, in a paper present, recently presented uh, to the Intellectual History Seminar at Cambridge about reading Machiavelli as a Republican imperialist. Um, but I think this really gets going with Harrington, and you can see it more, uh, it, it, a more full throated um, version of this in in Locke. Um, but yes, certainly in the 18th and 19th um centuries when arguably the the republicanism gets dropped and Harrington is this kind of um, bridge which can be crossed either way and it's sometimes hard to see which way uh, which which way he uh, falls. I think at this point it might be worth bringing up the question of religion. We've noted possible comparisons of Harrington to different philosophers Uh, there is a remark that Harrington makes that uh, um, the vices of the people are from their governors, which I think has a slightly platonic echo in the argument that it's it's in the ruling class of guardians that the mistakes are made that lead to the cycle of regimes and imbalance corroding uh, the Commonwealth. But Harrington doesn't go on to say that his Commonwealth will inevitably fall due to mortal mistakes. He seems to have... Uh, a implicitly or perhaps explicitly christian faith in this commonwealth and perhaps this is just
1: a way of trying to justifying it to people to get people to try it i think it's the property Uh, the property distribution he has a property law which is meant to fix the property distribution and since for him the property distribution dictates the regime to a large degree if you can keep the property distribution from changing you can stop the form of government from changing and I think that's why so much emphasis is placed here on the property law. And that's a very insightful thought, and a thought which influences you know, a lot of Marxist and left-wing theory, an awful, awful lot of it. And I, I, I think you're right to say that there's a tendency for Harrington to be kind of buried under the people that he has been influenced by or goes on to influence. And I think this is probably the the principal flaw of Cambridge school style history of thought, which is oftentimes, especially a a figure like Harrington, who only gets read after you've read other people. Nobody assigns Harrington first. Everybody's going to read Leviathan in undergrad before they'll come anywhere near Harrington. Mm. So Harrington is always getting defined in relation to more popular, bigger name theorists. He's Introducing Machiavelli to England, or he's uh, interacting with Hobbes, or he's uh, uh, defined in terms of his influence on later theorists like Smith. Uh, And I think that that uh, diminishes significantly, Harrington. If Harrington is to be taken seriously, somebody at some point should do a, a Chicago you know, Straussian style, just let's read Oceania and see what's in it and just see what's going on there. And part of the reason there's so much controversy about what Harrington is on about is that most of the scholarship on Harrington comes from different Cambridge school historians of thought who all have their own narratives of this period that they're trying to find evidence for in Harrington. And he's being read instrumentally to advance different interpretive aims People generally already have by the time they get to the point in their career where they're ready to go (laughs) straight at him. Uh, And that's why somebody like me who's taught the whole history of political thought at Cambridge has not had to spend a lot of time on Harrington. You don't have to spend a lot of time on him if you go through Cambridge history of thought in undergrad because he's not treated as somebody to be read by himself. He's not given his own individual topic. And because of this, he's always being defined in relation to other things. And what, therefore, when we go through him, you know, we ask questions that if we were asking them about Hobbes, we would have answers to. When I say, so what exactly is the role of the Lord Archon? We don't have a very good answer to that question. Uh, if I say, you know, you know, where are the priests in all this? We kind of have to figure it out. I, I don't think the scholarship on uh, Harrington has taken him sufficiently seriously on his own terms because it's too busy trying to define him in relation to other people. And oftentimes when you're trying to define a theorist too much in relation to what's around, that can become an excess. Now, I also think it's excessive to read a theorist by alone without any familiarity with what's around, because that results in presentism and the projecting of one's contemporary concerns and private personal interests on the theorists that they're reading. And the Cambridge School does an excellent job of preventing that from happening by contextualizing in history, by reading up on people's biographies, by paying attention to other people read. So I'm not against the approach. I like elements of both. But this piece by Adam Tooze this week, where the contemporary American realists all get slagged off because of a genealogical connection to people like Carlisle and Carr and Schmidt, I think is a great example of the excesses of of the opposite style where you are constantly defining everybody in relation to who's around and you don't spend enough time on anybody to know them individually uh, to really, yeah. really know them and grasp them as a specific theorist but their own interests, uh, you know, independent from who they influenced. And, and we do and on this show, we do a lot of kind of Cambridge style. OK, where does this fit in relation to other things? But it is often valuable also to take somebody on their own terms once in a while. And this is a theorist where I think the scholarship has suffered from. Uh, you know, he's just not been read enough for his own sake by people interested in him for his own sake. I think, in a, in a sense, Harrington is
2: both read and misread because the reason why... Harrington is read as being making the same argument as Aristotle or Machiavelli uh, or later theorists like Locke or Hume or Smith or Marx or or uh, Mersheimer. I think we have a <laughs> started a new strand of Harrington studies on this episode and uh, linking Harrington to Mersheimer. I don't think this has ever been done before. Uh, <laughs> So this is a this is a, this is a new comparison, uh, which is quite amazing because Harrington has really been compared with absolutely everyone uh in intellectual history, both within um uh, uh, political uh thought and outside of political thought, Harrington has been linked, um, for instance, uh um by I Bernard Cohen uh, to uh William Harvey's uh, discovery of the uh the kind of uh, the 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 mechanisms for uh the uh the the the, the blood flow in the uh, the blood circulation in the in the human body uh and the argument in harvey that uh quote the king foundation of his kingdoms and son of his microcosm is the a heart of the commonwealth from he- whence all power arises all mercy proceeds whereas. uh for harrington uh, it's uh, more the case that the, uh, the 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 king is more like a uh, the, uh, the the head of the commonwealth and a kind of uh, a, 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 a wise ruler uh and in uh, and one interesting idea here is uh, that um, the I- the idea of the uh William Harvey that it's the blood flow that is the central to um that whereas Aristotle argues that the uh, uh, that the uh, heart comes first and then the blood in the embryonic formation uh, for William Harvey it is the blood that comes first um and the heart exists as a as a pumping mechanism for creating kind of the, the, the uh, uh, for, for for allowing the uh, uh, allowing the blood to flow, uh, and acting as a kind of pumping mechanism. And H- Harrington is similarly making an argument for uh, a kind of quote political anatomy. And like Hobbes, uses these this kind of metaphor of the state as a body politic, and as a kind of um, biological structure, uh, and. H- Harrington explicitly draws on uh Harvey's book De Motu Cordis arguing that quote the parliament is the heart for Harrington which which is like a uh a, a, a suction pump uh first sucking in and then pumping out the lifeblood of Oceana by a perpetual circulation as uh, a, a, as this this article by Ibant Cohen argues uh and so uh, and and Harrington further says, quote, the parliament is the heart which consisting of tr- two ventricles, the one greater and replenished with a grosser store. The other less and full of purer, sucketh in and gusheth forth the lifeblood of Oceania by a perpetual circulation. So the parliament here for Harrington is the heart of the state. The the Lord Archon is the head of the state. And then the flow of the blood is more is more like the 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 people of the state. It's not quite clear, although the people in a sense form the other role of the other, the other ventricle, the Senate and the the Senate and the people being the, uh, the the legislative bodies in this, in in, in the state and the King being this balancing head over the, the emotional heartstrings of the Senate and the people. So there is this um, biological metaphor in Harrington um, which makes Harrington seem, I guess, somewhat Aristotelian, as due to Aristotle's emphasis on uh, biology versus the emphases in Plato and Hobbes on geometry as the the, the founding art of uh, art of politics. Um, but there is also, and this is where I'm uh, reminded of uh, the episode on the the, the Timaeus. This more uh, spiritual Harrington, which is, on the one hand, religious, and uh, H- Harrington is um, positioned as writing alongside uh, both uh, uh, Hobbes and Spinoza as, uh, a- 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 as uh, on the one hand, critics of uh, theological politics, but on the other hand, advocates of a certain kind of theological politics, as demonstrated by The chapter in Leviathan of a a Christian commonwealth, followed by uh, uh, of the uh, kingdom of darkness, and the title of uh, Spinoza's treatise deriving from um, Hobbes. The the title is uh, 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 "Theological Political Treatise Tractatus Theologica Philosophicus." Um, And on the one hand, uh, Harrington is situated uh, as Hobbes and Spinoza are in new readings of scripture. Uh, and new readings of, uh, of, of of religious texts. But Harrington is, oh, and, oh, I mean, for instance, the role of the Lord Archon in, uh, in Oceana is, like with Hobbes, positioned alongside both uh, Lysurgus, uh Solon, Romulus, but also uh, Moses, and is positioned as a religious and political figure. And this this is somewhat like the uh the the, the origins of realism in international relations in people like Morgenthau or more relevantly Reinhold uh, Niebuhr in this kind of uh, uh religious uh realism, or kind of an Augustinian tradition where the world is seen as uh fallen, and so we have to get to grips with uh w- w- with the reality of things um. Uh, but H- Harrington also has this platonic idea of reason as the guiding light of the, of the Commonwealth. And it's on the one hand, there is this Aristotelian naturalism, but it isn't like Hobbes viewed as just mechanically reducible to the parts because of the importance of the head is this kind of link between the body and the heavens uh, in Harrington, we still have this distinction between body and soul. And soul isn't really viewed as a pure Aristotelian functional way uh, uh, as a kind of uh, uh, potentiality. Uh, But it it does, I think have a platonic uh, link and the idea of contemplation and the soul knowing itself is something that is running through uh, Harrington's account of the centrality of wisdom and philosophical knowledge to the rulers, in particular to the Lord Archon, uh, to, uh, to the state. And then the, the, then the rulers have to use rhetoric to try to legitimize their ideas to people. But first and foremostly, they start with wisdom. They start with contemplation. The, the metaphysics seems less worked out than um, Plato's Timaeus. So I think perhaps a closer example would be Republic. Even then, Harrington is not uh, is is not a philosopher in the way that these that these other writers are. But does think that politics should be in some way philosophical, theological, and should be guided by the light of uh, reason and contemplation that seems to be completely central um, for harrington, and for this reason, Harrington has been seen by people like Judith Scard ha- as having a s- split personality on the one hand, a mechanical political economy, on the other hand, a utopian uh, fantastical uh, political theory, uh, as Charles Blitzer says, the idea of Oceania as an immortal commonwealth that seems more like a rhetorical trick or as Plato would say, a noble lie than anything else. Um, it, because Harrington does think claim that Oceania could be immortal, but at the same time, uh, he acknowledges that the vices of the people are from the governors and seems to think it's very hard to make the right decisions politically. That's why he thinks you need a written constitution. That's why he thinks you need an agrarian law. That's why he puts all these institutional mechanisms in place, but then gets all utopian towards the end and uh the utopianism is on the one hand a legitimation story, a way of trying to make his his uh sophisticated balance make sense to people poetically, uh, which is why he opens the book with uh w- with a kind of poetic uh, uh allegory, and has influenced um poets as uh, as as well as political writers uh since um but Also, the utopianism seems tied to a kind of philosophical, theological idea of the soul and of philosophy as the guiding lights of politics. Uh, And so Harrington, for this reason, uh, is read in so many different ways, partly because of Harrington's own insistence on balance uh, and on the importance of balancing different considerations in politics meaning that Harrington is read as being on one side of the balance or on the other side, on the side of the body, on the side of the soul, on uh, the side of uh, democratic theory or on the side of the aristocracy or the monarchy. Whereas at the end of the day, though Harrington does have a set of priorities that distinguish him from other theorists, it is somewhat correct, at least, for people to read him through these other theorists because harrington himself thought that you shouldn't fall too far to one extreme on the other you should stri- strive to balance between the concerns that the theorists around harrington propose but which harrington thinks properly in
1: politics need to be balanced well i think we've had our fun for today Hope you guys have enjoyed the episode. It's great to have Edmund back to hear about Harrington and argue about what to do with Harrington and how he might be read and where he fits in the whole scheme of things. Look forward to coming back next time and talking more about something else. I think we're cycling back to, we've kind of been doing this ancient medieval Early modern or contemporary thing, where we do kind of every three episodes a different. We cycle back to each of these periods, and I think we might be doing Iamblichus next. I think that might be where we're going next. But of course, if Alex wants us to do something else, we might do something else. So thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Thank you.